Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I am so thrilled to welcome my colleague, Dr. Jessica Drummond. It's been um, a long time coming. I've been wanting to know more about Dr. Drummond's work and her work with women's health, especially around the important topic of endometriosis. I find many of my patients struggle with this um, really underdiagnosed condition. And there's also this whole world of estrogen dominance and how you know women are affected by all sorts of reproductive health concerns. So we're gonna dive into this topic and before we uh, begin, I want everyone to know about Dr. Drummond. She is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She holds licenses in physical therapy and clinical nutrition and is a board certified health coach. She has 20 years of experience working with women with chronic pelvic pain, facilitates educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries globally and leads virtual wellness programs for people with endometriosis. Dr. Drummond lives and works with her husband and daughters between Houston, Texas and Fairfield, Connecticut. So welcome, Dr. Drummond. It's really an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. It's truly my honor to be here. Oh, well, let's just dive in. Obviously, your life's work is around the field of endometriosis and all the other things we just shared in your bio, but how did your journey lead you to this important topic? Well, I started uh, my physical therapy practice actually in sports medicine. Uh, I thought I was going to be doing orthopedics, sports medicine. I was an athlete as a kid, and that's what I was most interested in first coming out of graduate school, but I did start to pretty quickly focus on the women's health related to orthopedics. So in physical therapy, you know, no matter what part of the body we're talking about, you're talking about bones and muscles and joints and nervous system innervation and circulation, and it's very structural. And so women's health from a physical therapy standpoint is also sort of orthopedic. So I would work with people who had, for example, shoulder issues related to breast cancer surgery or back pain or pelvic pain related to pregnancy or urinary incontinence related to pelvic floor muscle weakness and things like that. Um, and then as I was developing my practice in pelvic pain and, and women's health in general, women with complex pelvic pain related to endometriosis or dyspareunia, painful sex, or things like um, vulvodynia, interstitial cystitis, bladder issues, there was a level of plateau that sometimes we would get stuck at with just our physical therapy tools. And the medical tools weren't much better. You know, back then the surgeries for endometriosis were not very good. And I'd have patients, you know, 16 surgeries, 20 surgeries later, uh, they'd have, you know, stimulators implanted in their spinal cords and just like there wasn't good or like pain management, which was just really opioids or things like that. So like both physical therapy and medicine had sort of run out of tools for more complex pelvic pain conditions. And so we had a lot of clients who were just stuck at a certain level of, of healing and then my oldest daughter was born uh, almost 17 years ago now, and I had a, quite a hormonal crash uh, postpartum, which I think everything I know now, which I didn't know at all at the time, was probably related to something like a reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, mm -hmm. um, a lot of fatigue, anxiety, uh, getting sick all the time. And I, I went to, you know, I was working in a lot of 
uh, I, we moved a lot in those years. So there were about four years postpartum of my, from my first daughter, I was struggling with these sort of mystery symptoms and none of my traditional colleagues, even in the specialty hospitals and university hospitals that I was working in had great answers for me other than, you know, take a nap, here's a Z-pack of antibiotics, you know, or uh, steroids or something, you know, like just kind of get rid of that sinus infection, come back and we'll treat the next one, you know? And so finally, um, there was a physician that I had worked with at the women's specialty hospital who we sent our sort of difficult patients to, uh, you know, this was back in like the early 2000s. And I was like, look, I'm a difficult patient. I don't know what is wrong with me right now. So fortunately, her office was right near a home that we moved back to in Houston. I mean, I could literally walk there. Um, and I would had to be that way because I was so debilitated by then. And she was the first person to introduce me to the idea of functional medicine and kind of lifestyle medicine. And even though in physical therapy, obviously, there's always a component of lifestyle medicine because we're talking about movement and exercise, the deeper kind of nutritional changes and hormone balance. She was a very early functional medicine doctor. She started practicing in that way. Well, she had acupuncture in her office. She had done some training in China and she had started practicing that way like well before this was popular in any way. Um, probably in the, you know, early nineties. And so she was very experienced with that kind of root cause approach, but she didn't really have a lot of nutrition specific training. So it was sort of like, you need to balance your blood sugar and, you know, that was kind of it. So what, what was useful about that for me is through this kind of self-exploration and working with her. And eventually I went back to school and got a doctorate in clinical nutrition. I learned that these tools that my kind of original Western training would have thought is like fluffy, like, mm -hmm. you know, rest, <laughs> sleep, <laughs> yoga, that, right? <laughs> you know, like who needs sleep? We're, we're healthcare professionals. We don't sleep. Right. Right. Um, you know, and, and, but also some more complex things like, uh, supplements and specific food plans, but still not difficult, like things that I could do over the course of about, you know, three to six months, I started finally feeling better. My hormones were starting to feel balanced. My energy was coming back. My anxiety was calming. And I was, I was so debilitated that I really couldn't work for about six months. But when I went back to work, I thought, huh, my patients with complex pelvic pain often have a hormonal component. These, this pain is cyclical in some cases. So I just started trying, you know, what if we try reducing inflammation in your food plan? What if we, you know, really track your sleep, things like that. And it, it was shockingly to me at the time effective. Um, especially in combination with the physical therapy. So I realized that using this collaborative approach gave us such a, such a wider toolbox, as we've sort of mentioned, and it allowed me to integrate the hormonal health, immune health with what I had previously thought was just more of like a musculoskeletal pain. Mm -hmm. And 
Also, a little bit after that time, our field began to evolve much more into better understanding of pain science as not being kind of like pain receptors, right, in tissues and organs. We now understand that pain is a, is a experience that actually originates in the brain. It doesn't actually originate in the tissues or the organs. Now, you can have significant tissue damage, endometrial growths, inflamed lining of the bladder. You know, there can be physical tissue damage, but the experience of pain takes that into account, but it takes a lot of other things into account. Everything from fear, support, neuroinflammation, inflammation in the brain, hormone balance, sleep quality. And so we suddenly had even more tools to downregulate that pain or quiet that pain experience, even if people were still living with some degree of tissue damage or some endometrial growth. It, it, we were able to modulate that pain and other symptoms using a wider perspective. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing your journey. And, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through that, but what a silver lining to come out on the other end of that. And always, you know, pain is such a challenging symptom. And I think um, if you haven't gone through it, it's like having somebody who can really, a provider or a practitioner or a physician who can really empathize. It's like, there's just this whole other perspective, you know, that I think um, just leads to more innovative tools. So I think, you know, you were on your path and, you know, you got on the other end and look at what you've done with your career, which is just amazing. And so, um, you know, kind of focusing kind of all of this, um, this whole condition of endometriosis, I guess, before we even dive into what the symptoms may be, what, what are we talking about? What is endometriosis? So endometriosis is tissue that's similar to the lining inside the uterus, not exactly the same, um, but that's growing outside of the uterus. So by definition, it's these growths outside of the uterus. Sometimes they're on reproductive organs, like growing on the ovaries or fallopian tubes or outside of the uterus. Sometimes sort of like behind the uterus, between the uterus and the rectum, they can be growing on the intestines, bladder, um, even the lungs. They've found endometriosis lesions on the knee, inside the nose. It's, you know, it's sort of like a benign cancer is another way to think of it. Um, it's a, there's genetic underpinnings to this disease. Um, and it's, in my opinion, although there's a bit of mm -hmm. discussion about this, everyone's pretty much in agreement at this point that it's an inflammatory disease. I think there's also an autoimmune component. And there was some good uh, data presented at the last endometriosis summit in uh, New Jersey just before everything shut down in early March on do, removing endometriosis lesions by a surgical technique that we'll talk about in a minute, actually changing immune markers and autoimmune markers in particular. And endometriosis does co-present often with other common autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's or celiac disease. Um, so there are those issues. And so it, because the growths are physically on and around all these internal organs, um, and there is a bit of a hormonal component, although that's a little bit less 
than I than was sort of originally thought. So the lesions we used to think were sort of fed by estrogen, mm -hmm. but now back in 2018 in Belgium, a study came out that showed that the lesions could be, have upregulated estrogen receptors or upregulated progesterone receptors or both or neither. And the same, all of those options could happen in the same woman. So it's not as clear cut as just being estrogen driven and the lesions themselves actually can produce hormones. So even if someone has kind of like estrogen balance or good estrogen clearance, the, the lesions themselves can actually exacerbate that situation. So it's hormonal, immune, genetic, and because of the location, most commonly in the abdominal pelvic area, there is pelvic related pain like menstrual pain, intermittent pain in between cycles, sexual pain. Um, and there's also very commonly digestive issues because there are these kind of sticky adhesions associated with it. So if you can imagine the small intestines is where you know food should gently flow through, but there's all these little sticky pockets and the, you know, the peristalsis is slowed down, that's a ripe opportunity for bacteria and other microbes to overgrow. So there's a lot of bloating, SIBO, constipation and or diarrhea. So there's a lot of uh, symptoms related to how the disease expresses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and thank you for sharing that and educating me too. It's kind of the, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad so many people are looking at this more and coming up with more information. And you, you mentioned it in your own journey, kind of reflecting that you might've had reactivated Epstein-Barr and kind of knowing what we know about immune and autoimmunity and um, all of these, you know, persistent chronic um, health conditions that we're all treating in our practice these days. Do you feel like endometriosis, has anyone studied kind of like a a pathogen driver. I know it can um, obviously, how you said, set the stage for chronic dysbiosis in the gut, but it, do you think that there could be a, uh, um, just a pathogen trigger to developing the, um, the endometrial tissue? Has that um, come across your desk at all or your thought process? That's a really good question. I know. I have not seen anything like that. And I would actually be surprised if that was the case. Although, you know, hey, anything can happen. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason why I would be surprised potentially is that studies have been done looking at kind of when this begins, right? Because normally symptoms of this don't happen until someone's starting puberty. It's, not, it's often not recognized for six to 12 to even 15 years post kind of symptom presentation. So that complicates things, but there was a study done looking at female fetuses mm -hmm. and the 9% of female fetuses did present with endometriosis lesions in utero. So these were looked at like fetuses that had died for some reason. Um, and, and endometriosis is in 10% of the global, you know, female population, including, or gender in that case, but also including anyone with a uterus, um, uh, transgender males or females. So 9%, 10%, 9% in utero, 10% in the, you know, population of people with uteruses, that's pretty close. So there's something going on even before birth 
that's setting the stage for this. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, amazing research. And then, you know, my brain, again, just from my bias goes to, or just my wheelhouse, I guess more, um, is that, okay, is there maybe then a toxicant trigger, like a maternal fetal transfer of toxicants that triggers the epigenetic, um, you know, expression of this tissue. I am just, I'm just curious. My brain is always like, okay, what are some common um, denominators that are, um, um, you know, creating this pathology? So just, you know, metals or um, herbicides or pollutants, or are we seeing an increase in endometriosis with the rise of more chemicals in our environment? Has that been looked at either? I honestly don't think that's been, that question has been asked. I really don't know. Um, I do think it's a good one. And I think the other thing that's important to consider is that there's a very wide spectrum of endometriosis presentation. You can have classified a mild case of endometriosis in terms of like the number of lesions and how big and where they are and things like that, and still have very intense symptoms. And the, the opposite can happen. Endometriosis can actually be essentially silent. Someone doesn't even know, doesn't ever find out they have it or you know, doesn't really express symptoms of it, except maybe eventually they find out they struggle with infertility and then they find it later. Or even after that in perimenopause, menopause, they might notice something or they find that like, you know, is because there is some genetic slash epigenetic component that they don't have it, but their daughters have it. But then they think, oh, maybe I did have it, but it wasn't that bad and it didn't impact my fertility. So there's a wide expression of symptoms. And so because of that, we're always looking at, okay, you know, it's not always the case that endometriosis impacts fertility or that someone has a, you know, a fertility goal. And because, and if somebody is young, younger, or actually anywhere in the childbearing years and has a fertility goal, uh, I think it's even more important earlier than later to have a surgical consult. But in other cases, there is certainly the opportunity to consider that someone might be able to significantly reduce or even completely relieve their symptoms when without surgery, with doing kind of addressing gut dysbiosis, um, you know, general inflammation and autoimmune issues. And some of those things can be triggered by pathogens or environmental toxins. So I think, you know, taking a wide lens on the expression of endometriosis is probably where those kinds of things would come into play. But we certainly, I don't think we have the data to rule out that some of that could be playing a role even, uh, you know, perinatally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for, you know, exploring that uh, question. It's just, again, when I look at the rise of what we see um, day in and day out, I, my mind always goes there first just because of what I do every day. But I, you know, I could be, you know, um, it could be relevant, it could not be. But, um, but no, thank you for sharing that insight. And, you know, you already kind of touched on this idea of like a surgical consult, but can you just share, so, you know, here we have this like wide array of expression, wide array of symptomology. You know, you went over the symptoms, which were really, you know, quite helpful, but how can people, how does this get diagnosed? What, what, do, what do we know about diagnosis at this stage? Well, ideally it's 
picked up early, which it, it often is not. And that's because the expression tends to begin with like stomach aches, um, digestive issues around the sort of pre-puberty time, which is anywhere from like eight to 15-ish. And then with puberty, with menstrual cycling, in teenagers and tweens, the pelvic pain, like kind of intense period cramping, uh, can happen even not in alignment with the cycle. Because first of all, the cycle is irregular. And second, you know, the disease process hasn't sort of solidified to be that more cyclical symptom. So, but if someone of that young age has sort of a combination of family history is, is an important one, if, if that's known, which it, not, it isn't always, but sometimes it is, then um, pain, like excruciatingly painful periods, excruciating pelvic period cramping that can lead to like dizziness, nausea, other kinds of vagal, vasovagal symptoms, um, fatigue, anxiety, but also overlaying usually with um, digestive issues. That's a like, that picture, 100% of school nurses should be thinking endometriosis because um, this is 10% of girls. So you know, two in every class of 20, right? So, um, but, and so the good news is there is a nonprofit organization called Endo What that both created a movie called Endo What mm -hmm. and um, has some training for school nurses that they distribute for free as, as long as they have, you know, know the nurse who wants it. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously our school situation is a little different right this very second, mm -hmm. but in whatever community your uh, listeners are in, start talking to the school nurses at the middle school, high school, even late elementary school is kind of the ideal time to screen for symptoms. Now, there's a lot of work that's been done in the last, you know, decade or so trying to find like a marker, uh, you know, something we can do in blood testing or genetic testing to have a test for endometriosis, but unfortunately nothing's been found at this point. So the only way to truly diagnose endometriosis is by a skilled laparoscopic surgery. And in my experience and opinion, it's really important to have that done by someone who basically specializes in endometriosis or pelvic pain. Gynecologists theoretically can do that surgery, but what happens is if they're not really used to looking for these lesions, there's lots of different kinds of lesion presentation. They can be hidden, they can be in weird spots. So you need someone who all day, every day is able to look in such a way that they're most likely to find what, or rule out endometriosis. And, and in some cases, the doctors who do this all the time it's sort of a diagnostic and treatment laparoscopy. So they, it's a laparoscopic surgery and they'll do the whole thing at once, you know, they'll, and they often have collaborating um, surgeons, general surgeons with them who look at bowel issues or take out the appendix. Like a lot of this stuff goes hand in hand. Um, but who, like where you have your first, your first and hopefully only surgery mm. makes a big difference. And that's one thing that's evolved quite a bit since I started where, you know, in the early 2000s, it was like, like I said, it wasn't very uncommon to have patients. I've like, I've had 17 surgeries and what they used to do 
was just go in and kind of burn off the lesions. It's called ablation surgery. That is not the gold standard. And excision is what's the gold standard, which is like literally like if you think more of a cancer lesion, like cutting out the lesion mm -hmm. um, at the root. And I very often see, especially when combined with this sort of pre-op and post-op whole person healing, um, you know, a person doesn't need more than one, maybe two surgeries in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. When they do the laparoscopic surgery, um, are, cause you just share like, oh gosh, like endometrial tissue can even be in the sinus cavity. Like how do, do they just kind of, um, really focus on one area where there's m most probability, um, based on symptom picture, or do they have kind of a standard checklist of areas to look at when they're going through this process? That's a good question. It's my understanding that most of the laparoscopic surgeries are kind of focusing on the abdominal pelvic area. But, you know, if they have reason to believe lung is not, it's not crazy uncommon. So like that would be one place, diaphragm, where again, they probably would have some symptom, you know, recognition of that would be a place they should look. They also can do imaging. So imaging studies are helpful. It's just that imaging studies can't rule out endometriosis, but it can help guide. Sometimes they can see it on various kinds of imaging, which can help guide the surgical decision-making. Mm -hmm. And then once the surgical, like with this um, more, you know, evolved and processing technique, like more the excision and getting to the root of the lesion, um, how often do they grow back or is that really solving the case? And we'll talk about all the work that you're doing to, of course, optimize this process, but um, what in your kind of clinical experience, um, how often is that a resolution? It's much more often a re resolution now. I don't know the percentages off the top of my head, and I would imagine that each surgeon kind of keep track of their sure. own uh, need for revision. But yeah. most of the time, it doesn't grow back, um, but it can. It's, it's mm. not 100% that it doesn't. It can grow back in the exact same spot. Usually mm. what happens if, they, if it comes back is that there was a lesion somewhere that was small or missed in an area that just wasn't dealt with, or you get kind of secondary adhesions, uh, which can be problematic around the bowel, especially like if you think about the bowel and the small intestine being really sticky and adhesed in various spots, or like, again, you know, dealing with fertility, if the fallopian tubes get adhesed or the ovaries. Um, so, it's not super common with a good surgery to have things come back, but sometimes things are missed. Sometimes they do grow back mm -hmm. and sometimes there is adhesions. The other complication is that inside the lining of the uterus, you can have lesions. That's a different disease process called adenomyosis, mm -hmm. but they, the only cure for that is hysterectomy. And the problem is that you don't know if someone has adenomyosis until you take out the uterus and do the, do yeah. the examination of the uterus, which is obviously too late. You can't just put yeah. it back in. Right. So that surgery is done very last resort. And um, so sometimes that's the kit situation. Like the endo is cleared out, but then someone's left with adenomyosis that they may not address right away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Um, and I guess, um, Obviously, the surgical procedure can be life-changing. I mean, I'm just thinking about 
a handful of my female patients who really have debilitating, you know, in their history, debilitating symptoms around um, their menstrual cycle and have for a long, long time and at our different stages of exploring, you know, this option. And so, um, but there's a lot that we can do, you know, either to support surgery and um, prep for it and to maintain the results of surgery or um, maybe in your opinion, I don't know if um, you can also um, get really great results without surgery, but what, what are your functional nutrition approaches and how can people really feel empowered and proactive to um, use diet to support this inflammatory process? Yeah. So whether or not someone has surgery is sort of the same process other than maybe timing, because it is the case that not everyone needs surgery. Not everyone chooses to have surgery. You know, surgery is not a hundred percent of the time required. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, especially if someone's younger and especially for fertility prison, uh, preservation, it's a good idea. But so we generally work in a four month program and we've refined this program over about the last 10 years. And really the focus is on number one, optimizing digestive function. So there's sort of unfortunately no one size fits all endo diet, right. but you know, chewing, stomach acid, digestive enzymes, good gut motility, which we often use in combination with uh, visceral abdominal physical therapy, Mm -hmm. um, pelvic floor muscle down training, good toileting positioning, you know, dealing with constipation, diarrhea, and or SIBO or SIFO, sticky ileocecal valves, that's that valve between the small and large intestines. So really getting digestion worked out top to bottom physically, like more structurally, but also, you know, calming inflammation, things like glutamine to line on the lining of the small intestine and zinc and uh, anti-inflammatory herbs and antimicrobial herbs, uh, uh, anti-inflammatory food plan, you know, Dr. Nash and I work on this a lot together now, and it's a combination of kind of a general elimination diet where we're just like lower, you know, reducing or eliminating things like dairy, gluten, soy, uh, sugar, and sweeteners, but also really focusing on adding nourishing foods. Because one of the big challenges with endometriosis, if you can imagine, someone's had debilitating menstrual pain and digestive symptoms since they were, you know, a tween. Mm -hmm. right? Right at a vulnerable age when you're worrying about like being too fat or, you know, not going to the bathroom in the wrong place. And like, you know, tween girls are probably among the most vulnerable humans we have, right? So you've got someone who's possibly been just afraid to eat for a decade or more, and worrying about her bloating presentation and things like that. So we really focus on, hey, to heal, you have to eat. It sometimes also feels better for them to just fast, mm-hmm. you know, because for the, their digestive and immune systems, get a break. But that's not obviously sustainable. And it also isn't a long-term anti-inflammatory and nutrition plan and brain plan and all of that and hormone balancing plan. So we, while we, there are some things that are important to eliminate, what we focus on doing is adding things like blended vegetable soups and bone broth and lots of herbs, uh, culinary herbs, oregano, thyme, 
you know, using garlic, cooking things so they're easier to digest, um, plenty of protein. I have a lot of patients with endometriosis have really low stomach acid because it takes so much ATP to build that. So they have trouble really absorbing protein. So, you know, like 20 gram bursts of protein throughout the day, whether that's a couple small turkey sausages or a smoothie with a protein powder or a, you know, piece of fish or chicken and adding the digestive uh, enzyme and, and stomach acid support to really help someone break that down. The other, and there's a couple of specific nutrients that have been shown to be helpful in endometriosis, uh, vitamin D, fish oil, and curcumin for lots and lots of reasons. So that's how we approach it. It's very individualized. It depends on what the digestive issues are, but we start with digestion, which is really you can't really separate digestion and immunity. You know, it, it's sort of a collaborative system. And so we're always thinking about optimizing gut microbiome, prebiotics, certain probiotic strains. And I, I, I found in the last, you know, 10, 12 years of refining this program that we don't really have to focus as much as I originally did on the hormones. Now we do want to focus on um, metabolism. So good liver support, mm -hmm. good pooping. I mean, daily pooping is like one of the best things you can do. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. Hydration, you know, things like that. Ginger has kind of, Dr. Nash has kind of added that nice layer of lymph brushing and things like that. So we definitely want to focus on metabolism and elimination, but I don't find I have to get super focused on hormones when we optimize the gut, because most mm -hmm. of these women are really pretty young. And so their hormones bounce back when their gut and immune system are finally nourished, when they're absorbing fat. And then the other key thing we need to focus on is the brain. Because of all the pain influence that I was talking about earlier, protein absorption is so key for brain neurotransmitters. Lowering inflammation is so key for just literally the brain's inflammation. And we've started focusing even more on nervous system calming. So vagus nerve toning, heart rate variability improvement, um, think measurable ways to, to mark thing to kind of track how we're improving with things like mindfulness practices, breath work, recovery, yoga, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, Dr. Nash and I just did a lymph and hormone cleanse. And while we talked about estrogen and progesterone, a big part of our whole uh, program was about liver, bile, and um, lymphatic drainage. And so, um, you know, from a naturopath's perspective, if we're, um, you know, improving eliminations and, you know, helping to optimize these key systems along with the gut, you know, things tend to improve and rebalance and regulate, you know, so, um, so that that's really interesting because, you know, when you're, when we're studying women's health and naturopathic school, there's just like a lot of like this whole bucket of like, okay, fibroids and endometriosis and all of these things kind of get lumped, ovarian cysts all get lumped together and oh, estrogen dominance. And obviously, you know, as more knowledge and information gets out there, there's way more complexity, but at the same time with these complexities, um, supporting foundational health can get a lot of traction, right? For, um, you know, these, these challenging conditions. Yeah, and I think it's nice because when you when you resolve that, especially because with endo, there's also these 
other symptoms. It's not just the reproductive hormone symptoms. There's the digestive symptoms, the anxiety, depression sometimes, fatigue. There's a lot of crushing fatigue with endo. If you just focus on getting estrogen right or adding more progesterone, it really doesn't fix the hormonal balance issue. I think, you know, backing it up to what you just said, elimination, digestion, immune function allows the rest of the body to heal because then you can just, when someone can finally absorb nutrients and sleep, mm-hmm. they, everything else kind of falls into place really. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Drummond, you truly have a holistic approach, which you've um, obviously done a wonderful job outlining in our conversation today, but is there anything you know else that we've missed or any you know themes or patterns or um, it must be fun working with so many practitioners and patients seeing this work evolve and seeing patterns and seeing how you can continue to evolve it to get people the right information more quickly and get them feeling better. But is there anything else um, that we haven't touched on is that, that you've been excited to discover and learn and share? I think the the final thing is that this program of kind of like really just optimizing each system works even better in collaboration. So both with the excision surgeon, but pelvic physical therapy, you can't really overlook that. Um, You know, the muscles of the pelvic floor, calming them down, making them more relaxed. You imagine if I had walked around my, from eight to 17 with my hand in a fist, you'd have, hand pain too, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what's going on here. There's layers and layers of muscle in the pelvis that for 10 years for these women, I've just been like, "Mm." so that pelvic physical therapy, visceral mobility from a pelvic uh, Mm -hmm. physical therapy standpoint is really a great part of the team. And I think for women who are struggling with this, most of the women that I've worked in my practice are just so motivated. Like they've really learned how to power through pain. I mean, I, there's some stories that I can barely believe, like (laughs) what people do. And so to me, women who have this and are still functioning at all, you know, it's amazing. And the fact that many of them are doing really amazing things through the pain, one of the most important things they have to kind of relearn as we work to kind of root cause heal this is how to be not so intense because they, they are so used to like pushing down the pain, working through the pain that some space in their lives to really just heal, the more they can build up some support and give themselves a little bit of space, a little bit of time, you know, investing six to 12 months and a lot of support could change the trajectory of someone's life where they don't have to do that anymore. And it's not to say it's a hundred percent gone, but it's so much better. And sometimes it is, but it's so much better that it's not this like constant, as you said, like five days a month, 15 days a month, just trying to keep surviving. But it takes, and this is really hard to do because our system is not designed to be like, okay, you're sick. If you, if we invest in you one year, the support that you need, the the food that you need, the sleep that you need, and then you can be crazy, much more productive for the next 30 years. Like we don't really think like that, but if people can gather the resources or, or their, or the people who care about them can help gather the resources to help them do that, 
it, I think that would really change things. And that's something that I really learned from my own experience. I mean, I really kind of hit the wall and investing essentially two years in my own health allowed me the ability to completely change my life, my work, my relationship to stress. And it's going to allow me to be into infinitely more productive into the next, you know, couple of decades. Whereas I probably would have been stuck in sort of a burnout situation if I hadn't been able to just step back and take that time to heal. So I think, you know, right now we're in this situation where our healthcare system is just broke, like broke. We've, it's been breaking for decades now, just broke. <laughs> so as women healers, especially, I think we could take a leadership role in rebuilding it and think about how we can better use our resources so that people can actually get root cause healing that really is much cheaper and more effective in the long run. Mm -hmm. And so beautiful message and vision. And I am, I'm absolutely agree. And, you know, in our, in our clinic, um, you know, people, and they need time, right. To recover. Right. And it's just, you know, having to, by the time I have highly motivated patients as well. So I totally understand that perspective. And, you know, this is, um, you know, not a, okay, one week, we're going to just do this protocol and everything's going to be done. And it's a, it's a really transformational experience that you need time and space for. And I hope, um, like you that our society honors and, you know, make, I mean, look what we were able to do with COVID. I mean, um, for all sorts of awful reasons, but the world stopped, right? And we're, you know, and so it's like, how do we create um, these micro pauses for the people who need it and that they can really go back to their life more vital and transformed and on their on their purpose, right? So I think that's a beautiful vision, Dr. Drummond. And you're, you're doing so many wonderful things to um, not only help people, but educate other uh, providers. Can you just share a little bit about your work and kind of the breadth of work that you offer at this time? Sure. So first of all, anyone listening to this who'd like to learn more about our approach to endometriosis, I'm happy to give them a copy of our book. It's at outsmartendo.com. And the rest of our training programs um, and work with clients is at the integrative, I'm sorry, integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. Uh, and we're also on Instagram at integrativewomenshealth. And we do practitioner training and we do have a program specifically for women with endometriosis and other forms of complex pelvic pain that we, it's a digital and fully telehealth model. So we work with clients all over the world and would be happy to support you. Thank you for all your amazing work and sharing this information. And we'll have all of your links that you just shared in the show notes. And I, yeah, I can't thank you enough. And I'm excited to share more of this information with my own uh, patients. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.